The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Trump, President Trump, wants a parade. Oh, it's dictatorial in nature. Yeah, sure, but don't say that, Democrats. Let the Republicans say it, like Lindsey Graham. I don't mind having a parade honoring the service and sacrifice of of our uh, military members. I'm not looking for a Soviet-style hardware display. That's not who we are. It's kind of cheesy and I think shows weakness, quite frankly. Oh, what does he know? What? He's a former JAG lawyer? Well, Trump went to military school in high school. He wore military uniforms. He pretended really hard to be in the military. He's friends with the generals. The generals like him. That's something, isn't it? Also on CNN, Barbara Starr made this notation. This may be seen as something unduly militaristic overseas. Well, yes, I I do think that could be interpreted as the subtext of a military parade. The perception of, what's the word, militarism. Much like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade can be interpreted, if you squint very hard, as a parade to give thanks, what with all the floating inflatable kermits. In fact, if this parade is interpreted as something other than militaristic, I think Trump will be quite miffed. Also, there is a downside to any kind of parade, a downside first enunciated by Trump's fellow outer borough native Barbara Streisand. Actually, since Trump creates or, as per the inauguration, redefines his own weather, that is not a problem. And as for the critics, you're all playing into Trump's hands. Don't caterwaul or jump right to comparisons with dictators. Just roll your eyes and say, yeah, sure, great idea. I'll tell the guy with the daughter on opioids, you know what, that M1 Abrams tank rolling down Pennsylvania Avenue, that's going to get your little girl off the junk. Yeah, glad you voted for him now. Make America great. Super. Or more forcefully, if you really need to, you could use this argument. And I find that this presidency really lends itself To this proper counter-argument, what you do is you simply assert that whatever Trump is advocating, you just assert that you have that right here. Let me give you an example. You want a wall? Yeah, I got your wall right here. Or, slight variation, yeah, you want a parade? Here's your parade. How you like your parade now? On the show today, I spiel about the distracting distraction that this distraction is trying to distract us from. Yes, trying to melt down the steel dossier. But first, so if we have a military parade, of course, it's going to center on our ongoing war in Afghanistan, where we are in uh, year 16 of conflict. Time to celebrate. Steve Call has written the follow-up to his definitive book on the wars of Afghanistan pre-9-11. This one, called Directorate S, is about the U.S. in Afghanistan post-9-11. Is it going well? I wouldn't throw a parade just yet. Often we have on this show someone I might loosely describe as a dean of American journalism. But it turns out my next guest, Steve Call, is actually, well, it could be the dean of American journalism. He's the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia, and he's a multiple Pulitzer Prize winner. The last was for Ghost Wars, Secret History of CIA Wars in Afghanistan, and he's 
updated that book as the United States has, I'll put this in quotes, updated our engagement in Afghanistan. The new book is called Directorate S, the CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 2001 to 2016. Steve Call. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm going to ask you a question that is asked a lot of times in the book by the people in the United States who are running Afghan policy. What's winning? What's winning? That's not a question the United States has been able to answer uh, very articulately, really. The central problem was that one war aim was to defeat al-Qaeda, which was the real threat. Al-Qaeda had authored the September 11 attacks. There were no Taliban on those airplanes. There were no Taliban involved in the plot. We don't even know if the Taliban leadership knew about the plot. So are they the enemy? Well, al-Qaeda, yes. Taliban, not so sure. In 2001, winning was overthrowing the Taliban government and disrupting al-Qaeda after the shock of September 11th. And and there was a recognition that the United States and the NATO coalition that went in with it did win. And they overthrew the Taliban Islamic Emirate a lot faster than people thought they would. And by 2004, 2005, the Taliban were reviving. And then the question is, well, what should be done about it? And gradually the U.S. recommitted to the war. But defining victory was always uh, one of the hardest debates in the Situation Room. So what is Directorate S? So it's a, the covert action arm of the Pakistani intelligence service Which called is ISI. ISI. Yeah. And, you know, the Americans knew all about it because they'd collaborated with it during the 1980s against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. In an amorphous group with a different cells that support different militant groups operating across borders from Pakistan, primarily the Taliban, but other networks operating in Afghanistan and also groups that point the other way into Kashmir. We understood that Pakistani interference in the Afghan war was a critical factor, maybe the defining factor in how the war was going to go. But they've been around for a long time, and they were particularly tight with what we now know as the Haqqani Network, former clients of theirs during the Soviet war, who, because of their geography and their loyalty to the Pakistani state and their effectiveness on the battlefield, were particularly favored. Why was the why is Directorate S this uh, cell, this powerful cell within ISI? What's their motivation for being so pro Haqqani or Taliban? Well, they take orders from the top of the army, so they're not a rogue operation. Although there are probably occasional rogue op- rogue elements in there, it's a disciplined organization that belongs primarily to the military. And of course, the most powerful institution in Pakistan is the military, and the most powerful individual in Pakistan at any given time is the army chief. So what they're really carrying out is the army's foreign policy. And the army's foreign policy. Which is the de facto foreign policy of Pakistan. Pakistan, Yes. And their interest in Afghanistan is to prevent India from establishing a strong relationship with the government there at Pakistan's expense. And in the early years, the peaceful years, they saw the U.S. consolidate with international support an Afghan government that looked like it might become an ally of India Mm -hmm. with international backing. And then they also saw the United States leaving. We went off to fight in Iraq. And they basically said... This neighborhood is post-American already, and it's unfriendly to us, and it's time for us to get our clients back into the game to have some influence in a post-American Afghanistan. That's as early as 2005, 2006. The international terrorist reach of the uh, Pakistani Taliban or the Haqqani network, does ISI countenance that? Because that's... Those are the expressions that really get the United States upset and make it seem like this somewhat ally up until a few years ago, Pakistan is just treacherous. Yeah. I mean, in pursuit of what they saw as their essential interests in Afghanistan, they were willing to go as far as the international community would tolerate 
in cross-border terrorism in Afghanistan. So sending the Haqqani network into Kabul to strike the Indian embassy and kill Indian defense attaches, or to send the Haqqani network into Kabul to hit big, spectacular targets, just to unsettle the government. The most ambiguous case, and I tried to unpack it a little bit in the book, I, and you know, I'm not sure I got to a satisfactory final judgment at trial, but is Mumbai, you know, this, this big slaughter, big slaughter yeah. and clearly an ISI operation. There's no ambiguity about that. But it begs the question, what are you thinking? I mean, you just about get your country listed as a state sponsor of terrorism. You change your ambiguous status as a, both a friend of the United States and an enemy of the United States into being you know, a sponsor of 9-11 style events. Yeah. It's interesting. Some of the intelligence about the answer to that question was at that point, Pakistan's internal terrorism problem was so bad with all these Pakistani Taliban groups going after the Pakistani state. Remember, they assassinated Benazir Bhutto. They were rocking cities with major car bombs that ISI felt it needed to prove its credibility to its own former clients by showing them they were still in the game against huh. India. We're on your side. Stop blowing up our buildings. I mean, literally, the, the militants were blowing up ISI buildings at that point because they thought ISI had become a lackey of the Americans. Can Directorate S be infiltrated? Yeah, I mean, that was an objective of the CIA, and it was one of the reasons why the CIA tolerated, you know, the kind of perfidious performance of, of ISI and Director Desk. And it wasn't just a general penetration that they had in mind. You know, after uh, 9-11, the trail for Osama bin Laden went cold. They yeah. knew that he had escaped Tora Bora and that he was almost certainly in Pakistan. Anyone who really knew the subject would have said that. But they had no clues for years uh, about where he was. So they stayed close to ISI looking for opportunities to figure out where bin Laden was on the assumption that somebody in Directorate S was probably responsible for hiding him. Now, the record says that that sourcing strategy didn't lead to bin Laden's um, killing or discovery of where he was hiding in Abbottabad. I'm not sure the record is complete. I mean, it may have played a role, that kind of recruitment inside Pakistan. In any event, it was certainly part of the reason they put up with their frustrating liaison with ISI was the hope that they could get close to individuals who would flip. We look at Pakistan, and it is a country that's really run by its military. And of course, as Americans, these, these are contrary to our values, and that is bad. But I think of Turkey, and maybe just in terms of real politic, it was better when the military ran the country and Erdogan didn't. You know, I, I wouldn't say it was a flourishing democracy, but it's not a flourishing democracy now. So there are examples <laughs> when a strong professional military class is actually a bulwark against chaos and can advance the United States interests. Well, that's how we've seen Pakistan again and again. And that's how the army sells itself to the Pakistani people, ask them to make the sacrifices in liberty and economic progress and a sensible foreign policy that the Pakistani people make on behalf of military rule. And it's not a crazy equation. I mean, in the sense that many Pakistanis have felt insecure during the last decade because of the terrorism that spilled into their country after al-Qaeda fled to Pakistan in 2001, 2002. And the situation on the ground in major cities that had not known significant terrorism became nightmarish. In 2009 or so, people were worrying about the Pakistani state falling. So the military reasserted itself. And it has always uh, protected its privileges, its economic benefits, its, uh, you know, its access to contracts and wealth through this narrative of, if not for us, you know, the deluge. So the United States has these assumptions. There are good guys and bad guys in Afghanistan. And if we just defeat the bad guys, the good guys will win. Is that true? Uh, n no, <laughs> no <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, 
yes, that's the basic equation. But something else has happened that is going to get in the way over the next few years, which is that Afghanistan has become much more factionalized along ethnic lines. The same kind of polarization that you see um, on a sectarian basis in much of the Arab world has also intensified in ethnic terms. War does that to you. You know, when every Pashtun looks like a Taliban and those Taliban are blowing up cars in your neighborhood and killing your children, this has interfered with the professionalization of the Afghan army and security forces. They've become themselves riddled with, you know, ethnic factionalism and patronage. And, you know, there's periodic efforts to try to do something about this, but the state is so weak and the president is so weak, it's very difficult to fix it. So a kid who is born today in a village, if I told you the name of the village, we could pretty reliably predict where his allegiances are going to be. And that was true of the man who's 20 years old and the man who's 40 years old from that same village. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is that that kid was lucky and moved to Kabul or Mazar or another city where he could access kind of urban life and maybe a little bit of education and social media might have kind of internationalized his outlook on the world and said, you know, maybe Dubai and I'm an Arsenal fan. And and there's a certain kind of nationalism that has grown up in this generation that that came up after 2001. Pakistan has helped consolidate Afghan nationalism. But are there opportunities in Kabul? Do people move there for a better life, leave the villages like they do throughout the world? They do. Yeah, they move there for security as much as a better life. Which is crazy to me because of all the, you know. The bombings. Yeah, when you hear about the recent bombings, but you don't hear about what's going on in the tribal regions. Yeah, but if you live in the village and you get crosswise with the Taliban, they come and knock a judgment on your door. The court has ordered your death. Right. Uh, You know, if you feel this has been uh, a judgment rendered in mistake, please call the cell phone number. We have an ombudsman for your appeals. (laughs) 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 And you either appeal or you leave for Kabul, you know. (laughs) The the ombudsman. They do. I mean, literally, they had, that was part of their kind of effort to win hearts and minds was we we have rough justice. It's swift. Uh, but we do have a hotline if you feel that it's this. Do they been say ombudsman? Do they use that word? I, I forget that the word. Nordic it's, word. It's, it's, no, it's a Pashto word. I, I don't love know that. Yeah, I mean, translated I, as ombudsman. I want to steal the loya jerga as <laughs> yes. a word for our gathering of the tribes. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't that be better than a convention, a loya yes. jerga? Yeah. Okay, Donald Trump says he's canceling aid to Pakistan. I understand the frustration with Pakistan. They've long been a minimal satisfier on the war on terror. Maybe that's the best that can be said. But what does that do? What does that canceling of the aid do? As you say, I can certainly understand the frustration with Pakistan and and withdrawing aid as a rational response as a taxpayer or a citizen to the conduct that we've all observed. But I don't believe that history suggests it's going to change Pakistani conduct. They were sanctioned heavily in the 1990s over their nuclear program. They didn't change a thing. They just became more isolated and angry and nationalist in the international system. And part of the reason they are so resilient is, of course, they have a powerful ally in China. I mean, for China, Pakistan is their most important ally in the world. That may sound strange, but you know, China doesn't have a lot of friends in the world. Um, they don't have a lot of allies, and they have frustrating comrades like North Korea, right. or you know, they have clients, clients, yes. you know, and they have you know, proto-client states emerging in Africa where they're trying to buy their way in. But they don't have a durable strategic partner like Pakistan. Uh, you know, remember Pakistan brokered Nixon's opening to China. China shared nuclear weapons technology so that Pakistan would have a deterrent against India. China looks at the next, you know, 50 years of great power balancing and they see India as a significant issue and 
Pakistan is the biggest thorn in India's side. Um, they see the U.S. coming in big with India and Japan and other Asian powers. And so if you don't have a lot of friends and you're in this neighborhood and you see this geopolitical future, why wouldn't you double yeah. down on Pakistan? And China gives them a lot more aid than the United States way does. More, way yeah. more, yeah. And especially since the U.S. drawdown, uh, the Chinese, not so much because of the U.S. drawdown, but because of their own corridor and kind of Central Asia transport strategy. They've been investing huge amounts in Pakistan and and building roads and planning for the next 10 or 20 years. So your book has all these scenes of people within all the administrations really debating and, and going at it, but also working hard and being knowledgeable. You know, Holbrook doesn't agree with Hillary Clinton, but they both know a lot and they're right. both spending a lot of time on this. Yes. What do you do? You know what it looks like now during the Trump administration. Who are those people, and what are they saying? Yeah, I think it's the you know it's a it's the same system. Um, you know, you have H.R. McMaster at the National Security Council leading the National Security Council, and he has experience in Afghanistan going back to the Obama years. You have James Mattis, who's the Secretary of Defense, and he has experience in Afghanistan going back to two thousand two. Two generals who who ran things in Afghanistan, yeah, and that I, has to have an effect on. Absolutely. The I decisions think, they make. I mean, you know, there's a professional team at the National Security Council, so far as I can tell, but the State Department is a shambles. And then you look out at the embassies, you know, you have all these interims, you don't have an interest in diplomacy at any level of the administration. And so one of the things, the themes of the debates during the Obama years, and it was true during the Bush years too, people are sitting around the Situation Room table and they're debating like what should our priorities be? And at least the diplomats are saying, okay, I know you have to fight a war. But what about the civilian side? What about humanitarian aid? What about agriculture? What about negotiations with the Chinese? What about this? And they were able to at least fight their corner. Uh, they were frustrated that the military seemed to win a lot of arguments even under Obama. But at least you know Hillary Clinton had lunch with the president every uh, week and she had a vision for the civilian side of the Afghan strategy that was very full. A lot of effort went into it. And then they also brought forward the idea of negotiations with the Taliban, which Obama in secret endorsed as early as 2010 without anybody knowing about it. But it was a few years where even though there was notionally support for the State Department to negotiate and see if there was a way out, really the war was still the Pentagon's war and the CIA's war to fight. Steve Call is the author of Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It is the follow-up to Ghost Wars, for which he deservedly won the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Google says that 15% of all searches are the first time that anyone has ever searched for those terms. I find that hard to believe. For instance, I search for monkey face horse breath, two and a half million results now. Just because there are two and a half million results doesn't mean that the results aren't based on this unique search. But still, I search for a sarsaparilla vomiting phlebotomist. I got 12,900 results. All right. It's not actually the unique phrases or the idea that I've just put together a bunch of words that no one has ever said before. Really? I mean, I know humanity's been around a long time, but sarsaparilla vomiting phlebotomist? Someone has said that? But what I'm saying is that's not what I'm actually fascinated by. I'm fascinated by the phrases that anyone ever said twice or a person heard and then repeated. Like, 
I remember a few years ago, back when people cared about sections of a newspaper, and that was a thing, a common complaint that I would hear was, you know, the New York Times has a business section, but no labor section. You ever hear that one? I work for a show called On the Media. Maybe we receive that criticism more than others. No labor section. But isn't labor one part of business? And labor's covered in the business section? It's like saying you guys have a sports section, but no athlete section. So anyway, I can understand why someone would raise that point once, but again, and then a second person would raise it. Here's maybe a better example. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Okay, you thought to put those words together. You figure you're making a point. That's fine. You tried. But no, that statement in the 70s, it took off. People heard that. And it resonated with them. We need to repeat this, this idea that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Such vivid imagery. How do two people, let alone 20,000 people, think that that's profound? Okay, I've got another statement. I don't understand why anyone would ever say more than once. Here it is. Let's listen to what Devin Nunes is alleging. Yes, discredited nincompoop Devin Nunes and his memo which has been answered, soon we'll find out, by another memo, a Democratic memo. Making memos fun again. We get to read more memos. This is why I got into following government in the first place. So I'm thinking about why anyone would ever listen to Devin Nunes again after reading this Post story about Christopher Steele. It was titled, Hero or Hired Gun? And the answer definitively was not or, it was and. Hero and Hired Gun. The Post story on Steele paints a picture of a guy who is absolutely pained by the information that he was tasked to collect. Yes, he made money on that information, but also he tried to use the information to save the rest of us. Now, Nunes is trying to push a narrative that what we need to know is that this was a guy out to get Trump. He was alarmed by Trump. I read that story in the Post and it confirmed what I have been thinking all along. It confirmed why he might have been alarmed by Trump. I think I know why the compiler of a dossier detailing Trump's links to a hostile power was freaked out about Trump. It's because he was the compiler of a dossier detailing Trump's links to a hostile power. All right, let's do a little experiment here. Let's say you're not Steele. Let's say you're Blurfington. Dave Blurfington of Ypsilanti, Michigan. Maybe it's pronounced Ypsilanti. Doesn't matter. It's a funny place name. So Blurfington there, you, 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 Dave Blurfington, you don't pay much attention to the Russia probe. You think it's all kind of fishy. You think the FBI might have been out to get Trump, and that's not good. And relying on this guy, Steele, that doesn't seem good. I mean, that's what Fox says. You watch some Fox. To the extent you think about this at all, that's what you're thinking. Okay, Dave Blurfington, let's say the Steele dossier was the Blurfington dossier. And you, Blurfington, had access to all the information in the Steele, sorry, the Blurfington dossier. Because you're Blurfington. Well, guess what? You'd be freaked out too. You, just regular guy from Ypsilanti who somehow had deep contacts in the Russian foreign ministry. Let's say you, Blurfington, were the compiler of the dossier. You'd be going nuts. I would hope that you'd be able to get meetings with top British and U.S. officials to raise a few red flags. So here, on one side, on the side of, oh, the government went too far, and oh, there's a tainted investigation, we're pointing fingers at Christopher Steele. He's this unbelievably well-connected former intel agent who was getting paid, but is also an expert. So he's the boogeyman for one side of this argument. 
And who is that side, that side who's pointing their fingers at Steele? Who are they holding up? Who's the leading light? No, it's not discredited income poop Devin Nunes. That guy came in after the fact. Who does the Christopher Steele is a dirty, dirty bird side hold up as clean and maybe even victimized? Carter Page. Carter Page, who in 2013 wrote to an academic press, quote, over the past half year, I've had the privilege to serve as an informal advisor to the staff of the Kremlin. Carter Page, who traded documents on energy policy and met multiple times with a Russian diplomat who was convicted of spying for Russia, who fits the description of male one, who the Russians were actively working, and that was known to the FBI. Some Republicans, not all, but some Republicans want us all to feel unsafe because the FBI regarded Carter Page with enough suspicion to see if he was spying. I'd feel a lot more unsafe if the FBI didn't regard Carter Page as a potential spy. The guy practically wore a cloak and opened his mail with a dagger, probably slicing up his own fingers. What I'm saying is a little incompetent. Nunez and his gang will tell you that it's a big red flag that Americans are being spied on by their own government. No, not Americans. One American, Carter Page, who is an American, perhaps to his chagrin, but one who really, really, really seemed like he was working with the Russians and may have been for all we know. I really don't see how a fair-minded person who doesn't come into this whole kerfuffle, who has a bit of information, maybe you checked out and you just watch Fox and you've seen some headlines, but someone who really looks at this information, I really don't see how a fair-minded person comes into this. And unless that person, you know, unless you have a raft of assumptions and motivated beliefs, how you can look at this whole situation and see Steele as the guy with the lingering questions and troublesome connections and not Carter Page, I don't get. I really don't get. Then again, I also don't see what the advisability of a mackerel utilizing a Schwinn has to do with gender relations. And that's it for today's show. Pure BNMA, GIST producer, informs me that we got a lot of mail, noting that I put an extra R in the name H.R. Haldeman where it doesn't belong. Mary Wilson, GIST senior producer, has told me to correct it, to remove that extra R, so I shall, and I shall tell you the man's name was obviously H. Haldeman. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, a stickler for accuracy, says, no, Mike, there is an R after the H, just not in the middle of Haldeman, so fine. The man's name was H.R. Haraldeman. The gist, I could still nail Bibi Rebozo standing on my head. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>